And we're here to celebrate Easter, to celebrate that Jesus Christ rose from the dead on this glorious day. But here's what I think. I think sometimes we treat Easter like a holiday. You know, we, we, we give it its props. We come to church. We say, he is risen. Hallelujah. But then we end up going home and eating ham. Amen. And I think that Easter means so much more, that, that we're, we're not tapping into some certain power that Jesus says we have from the resurrection. I think it means a whole lot more than just an empty tomb 2,000 years ago. I think it means a whole lot more than just archaeological proof that Jesus is who he said he was. And I think even it means a whole lot more than our salvation. I, in, in fact, I think what, what happened on the Resurrection Sunday, on Easter, that the resurrection of Jesus was so explosive that the shockwave from that event should affect our lives in real, specific, and practical ways today. I think it should affect our relationships. I think it should affect our marriage. And so this morning, what I want to do is build kind of an argument that the resurrection should change your marriage. In fact, I want to say that God wants to resurrect your marriage. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, what does Easter have to do with marriage? Well, I want to try to tell you why, what I think it has to do with Easter, with your marriage. First thing is this. I believe that the story of the Bible is one complete story. It's one giant story, and the resurrection is just the climax of that story. In fact, if you were to take the book of Genesis as the beginning of the story, and then the story goes all the way to the end, maybe the book of Revelation somewhere, I'm not quite sure, to be honest, because I don't know if the story ever really ends, but for us it ends in Revelation. And so the whole story from cover to cover, if you were to read it, it'd be completely clear it's one big story. And the resurrection, Easter, is just the climax of that story. In fact, the name of our church is Missio Dei, which translates as the mission of God, which actually that title comes from this concept of it being one big story. And you, we would say the story's about God who's on a mission to save people who are far from him. Okay, so you're thinking, okay, great, Mike, but still, what does that have to do with marriage? Well, here's what's interesting. The story opens with a wedding. In the book of Genesis, God brings a woman to the first man, and they have a wedding. The story ends with a wedding as well. And all throughout the middle of the story, there's all this talk about weddings and about marriages and about adultery. For instance, in the very beginning, in chapter, Genesis chapter 2, God brings a woman to Adam and says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and the two will become one. And incidentally, the first man did not have a father and a mother. So God was basically saying, this is the definition of marriage. From here on out, for this reason, two will become one. Whoa. And then... In the end of the story, we have the great wedding feast of the Lamb. Jesus, the groom, is married to the bride, which is the church, and it's a beautiful picture. And then all throughout the middle, God talks about himself as our husband. In the Old Testament especially, he calls himself our husband who loves us, who cherishes us, who carries us. And then he speaks about us, actually, as his wife, who's adulterous who we run quickly to other gods and to other idols, and we've, we've, we've committed adultery against him. And then Jesus shows up in the New Testament, and he's always talking about weddings. 
He's talking about himself getting married, and he tells these stories about himself as a groom and this great wedding day. And so the Bible's all about marriage. You can say the whole story's about a wedding. It's like a fairy tale story, really, where the prince rides in on his horse and slays the dragon and marries the princess. Isn't that cute? I need to say this, though. It is not a chick flick, okay? I need to be 100% clear about this. The Bible is not a chick flick. There's plenty of blood. There's plenty of violence. There's plenty of weird stuff happening that make it not like some mamby-pamby sisterhood of the traveling pants or something like that. This is a real manly story. For instance, if you just take the last wedding that I was telling you about, it says something like this. It says, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Oh, isn't that cute? But then the very next verse, John says, and I saw the sky open up and Jesus riding in on a white stag. He has tattoos on his thigh. He's got a robe that's been dipped in blood. There's fire in his eyes, a sword in his hand, and he's got an army with him. And he says, come, let us slay and eat the flesh of the kings. I'm not going to go on any further. As you can see, it's a manly story. Now, it is about love. It is about marriage, but it is manly. So what has it got to do with your marriage? Well, if the whole story is about marriage, in a sense, then you can bet your right bottom dollar that God cares about your marriage. And actually, your marriage is a part of that big story. It, it is a part of that story. I'm going to prove that today in about 20 minutes. But before we do, I want to ask a question. Raise your hand if you're married here this morning. I want to see all the married couples. Okay, we got a lot of married couples here. Amen. You guys know a lot about marriage, don't you? I saw that. Um, well, here, how about this? Who's the newest, youngest, wet behind the ears married couple here? Raise your hand if you've been married for less than six months. Anyone? How about less than a year? How about a year and a half? Two years. Two years. Oh, Dan and Carrie are the youngest wet behind the ears couple in this park. Well, I have a book I want to give you as a gift because of your youthfulness in marriage. You're going to need this. You're going to need this book. This is a book written by Timothy Keller entitled The Meaning of Marriage. I think it'll help. Now, of course, I have to, have to ask who's the oldest, crustiest married couple here. Anyone can tell me who the oldest couple is? Okay, so raise your hand if you've been married for more than 100 years. <laughs> How about 70? 60. How, how, how many years? Someone just call out a number. 33. 33. Any, 39. I got a 39. I got a 39. I got a 39. Anyone else got a 39? I got a 39. 39 wins. This is the book for you guys. You probably don't need it because I know you guys are sitting next to Carrie. You guys borrow hers, but nevertheless, it's a good book <laughs> by Timothy Keller. Now, we're going to begin a series on marriage. Um, entitled The Meaning of Marriage, and I've taken that from Timothy's book, and I'm going to be using that book, quoting it a lot during this series. And Timothy basically goes through the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And so what I want to do tonight is, is, is talk to you about Ephesians, chapter 5. In fact, let me just read for you Ephesians, chapter 5. Now, Ephesians, chapter 5 is actually the, the Bible's wedding manual, if you ask me. It's, it's the most powerful text when it comes to weddings. Now, when I do a wedding, I always do that wedding from Ephesians 5 because it's just so powerful. 
And I've done several weddings. In fact, I've done several weddings right here, right in this very place. And so I think it's appropriate that we would study this text. So I want to read this text for you real short. I think that all of Ephesians 5 could be boiled down to the last two verses. I'm just going to read those two verses for you. Verses 31 and 32. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) So Paul, he basically quotes the definition that God gave us in the first chapter, right? The definition of marriage is the two will leave, I mean, the father will, I mean, the husband will leave his father and mother, they'll become united, and the two will become one. So Paul quotes that, but then he says, and this message, this mystery is profound. And for all of you married people in the park, you'll be saying, amen, (laughs) It is a mystery indeed. How can two people become one and a man and a woman at that? Now, I don't know much, but I do know a little about a man and a woman. Let me tell you what I know about men and about women. Wait for it, Jim. They're different. They're different. In fact, they're so different. The difference between the sexes becomes like the butt of so many jokes. Right? Men are from Mars and women are from Philadelphia. I mean, there's all kinds of different things. You've heard it all before. Let's take, for instance, the issue of money. Are men and women different when it comes to spending money? Yeah. Yes, they are. A man, for instance, will spend $10 on a $5 item that he doesn't need. He gets to the store, he's like, come on, let's just get it and get out of here. A woman, on the other hand, will spend $5 on a $10 item that she does not need. I don't know what she's like. She's like, I have to have it, I guess. You know, it's, you know, no one's laughing. Isn't this true? Yes. It's true for my wife. Yes. Yes. She'll buy it. I don't need it, but it was on sale. <laughs> How about the issue of arguing? Men and women argue, don't they? We all know that a woman always has to have the last word in an argument. Can I get an amen? Watch it. Watch it. <laughs> but the difference is that for a woman, for a man, that is, any word he says after that is the beginning of a new argument. Or how about the issue of cats? You want to talk about cats? No, I'm talking about cats. Men and women are just different. And so Paul is saying it's a profound mystery that the two will become one flesh. I have a, and, and let's just take this for instance. You take those two different things, a man and a woman, the two become one, you're going to get a mess. Can I get an amen on that? You're going to get some messiness. In fact, marriage is messy business. I have a friend who said marriage is like a three-ring circus. The first ring is the, 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 the engagement ring. The second ring is the wedding wing, ring. <laughs> and the third ring is the suffering. And we could laugh about that because it's true. But the other thing is it's also kind of sad that we laugh about that because so many people buckle under that suffering and call it quits. In fact, I don't probably need to quote the statistics to you, the recent statistics even about divorce in this country. I probably don't need to quote that to you because some of you are divorced and I know and I know you and there's no judgment. I, I know that you've been divorced. And if you haven't been, then I'm pretty confident you've got some friends who are either divorced or getting a divorce or by golly want a divorce. So divorce is, well, it's rampant. Jenna McCarthy opens up one of her TED Talks. Do you guys ever watch TED Talks? I love to watch TED Talks. They're very interesting. She opens up one of her TED Talks on marriage and she says this. Every year in America alone, 
2,077,000 couples make a legal and spiritual de decision to spend the rest of their lives together and never have sex with anyone else. And the crowd laughs. And then she says, and they'll vow before the priest and their family and everybody there that nothing, not illness, not life-threatening illness, not poverty, not total misery, and everyone laughs, will separate them or even put a damper on their undying love for one another. And everyone laughs. And she says, but we know that half of them will end in a divorce. And everyone laughs. And the truth of the matter is, is the statistic says more than half will end in a divorce. So here we are on Easter morning. We're surrounded by suburbia, all these beautiful homes. I've walked these streets and hung door hangers. And so I know there's beautiful homes, there's beautiful families. But if the statistics are true, and they have been for years, half of them will end in a divorce. So that brings me back to my original argument. I think Easter means more than just an empty tomb 2,000 years ago. There's power for our marriage today. And if the whole story is about a marriage, then God wants your marriage to be healthy and magnificent, and he wants to resurrect your marriage. Amen? But there's something else that we can do. We can turn it a little bit here. There's another way that you can translate the word mystery. The word mystery could also be translated secret. It's a secret. What do you mean it's a secret? Well, you could say it's like a key to unlock the secrets or the mysteries of the resurrection or of the gospel. Well, how's that? Well, I didn't actually finish that verse when I read it earlier. Remember I said dot, dot, dot? That means there's more to come. So let me just finish it for you now. Paul says this, man will leave his father and his mother, two will become one, and this mystery is profound, comma, then Paul says this, but I'm not talking about marriage. I'm talking about the gospel. That's what he says. So the word mystery in the Bible is also often translated or used in place of the word gospel. In Greek, it's mysterion, and Paul uses mystery for the word gospel. So in case you're not picking up what I'm throwing down, let me slice it real thin for you, okay? Paul is saying that your marriage is gospel-like. It's gospel-y, you could say. It's a message about the gospel. Your marriage is a living story and illustration about the gospel. God's original design for marriage was to teach us about the gospel. Okay, so we've spent some time defining marriage, the two becoming one. In order for us to really understand what Paul's saying here, we might need to spend a little time defining the gospel. Just real quickly, it's pretty simple. The gospel is... Well, we're sitting, right, on Easter Sunday celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. That's, the, that's the, the grand story of the gospel. The gospel is that, remember I told you earlier, God's story is that he's on a mission to save people who are far from him. And the way he accomplishes that mission is through the gospel, by sending his son to die on the cross to atone or to pay for all of our sins. And then he dies and he resurrects from the dead, destroying our sins, conquering death, and says, now you can no longer have separation from God, but eternal life, just like I have eternal life. Or to put it even simpler, I might say it like this. 
God loves the world so much that he gave his only son so that anyone who believes in him will not perish away from God or outside from God, but will have everlasting life with God. That's the gospel. Well, Mike, how does my marriage <laughs> reflect that? Well, that's the secret. That's the key. That's the mystery. Let me read for you what Timothy Keller says in this book. He says, on the one hand, the experience of marriage will unveil the beauties in the depths of the gospel to you, and it will drive you further to your knees and reliance on it, and we'll say amen. But on the other hand, a greater understanding of the gospel will help you experience deeper and deeper union with each other as you go on. And then he adds this, marriage is a major vehicle for the gospel's reshaping of your heart. Well, what does that mean? It means this. It means that your marriage exists to teach you more about God's love for you and about the gospel. And God's gospel exists to teach you more about your marriage and your love for your spouse. And your marriage is a major vehicle that God uses to draw you closer to himself and to purify you. So let me tell you how this fleshes out. How does this mystery flesh out really in marriage? There's lots of ways, right? I could unpack this for hours, um, but I'm just going to keep it simple and just, just give you the easy, simple one. Marriage and the gospel both are wonderful and yet painful all at the same time. And this is how marriage and the gospel are the same. And I'll explain that. We've already talked about in, in jest the painful parts of marriage. But marriage is also very wonderful, and we will talk about that in the next six weeks. And the gospel we know is wonderful. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's good news. We actually call the gospel good news. It's wonderful. But it's also painful. Why is the gospel painful? Well, it's painful, I guess, because Jesus died on the cross. That was pretty painful. But that wasn't painful for you and me. Why is it painful for you and me? Well, it's painful for you and me because... Even though Jesus died on the cross, conquered my sin, and resurrected from the dead, and thus I die with Christ and die to myself and resurrect with him into new life and become a new creation. In fact, we, we symbolize this through baptism. We die, we resurrect, we become, as Jesus says, born again into a new creation. Even though that's true, I still like to sin. I still like my sin. And so every day becomes for me a constant battle and a constant struggle to change when I don't want to change. God says in the Bible, he's purifying us as, a, as his bride waiting for this great wedding day. But I don't want to be purified. I like the way I am. And so it's a constant struggle and it's painful. Your marriage is just like that. It's a sacrifice. And when you take two people who are different and put them together to become one flesh, you can bet there's going to be some change, a lot of change. If you've been married even for a short period of time, Dan, Carrie, you know, it, marriage changes you, doesn't it? In fact, I'll just tell you, I'm so glad I'm not the same person I was at 27 before I got married. And I have friends today who aren't married. I can't wait for them to get married. They need to get married because they need to be changed. And marriage will change you. It has a way of maturing you quickly. But 
we don't want to be changed. And that's painful. In fact, we even talk about marriage like this. Well, I want someone to love me for me. And I want, I want someone not to try to change me. Well, then you're missing the point. That's what marriage is for, to change you. So the gospel and marriage are similar because both of them are wonderful, and yet both of them are painful because they will rub you and change you to become a purified, holy thing. In fact, this is why the ancient church actually called marriage a sacrament. It was a sacred institution that would sanctify you, that would make you purer. So marriage is like the gospel in that it forms us and shapes us into who we are trying to be. All right, so in conclusion, let me say this. There's still so much more to unpack about the power of the resurrection and about the mystery of the gospel for it to actually take effect in our marriage. And I obviously don't have time to do that now, right? I can't unpack all the mysteries and the secrets of marriage and, then, and the gospel in 30 minutes. I mean, if I could do that, I would have titled this sermon, How to Resurrect Your Marriage in 30 Minutes. <laughs> or better yet, The 30-Minute Marriage Resuscitator. <laughs> and I'd write a book and I'd be wealthy. It's going to take some time to unpack that. So I feel bad that I'm going to have to leave us hanging just a little bit about resurrecting our marriage because I just don't have time to unpack all of that. So if this sermon were part of a series, and it is, I would say this is the introduction to that series. And in the next six weeks at our church at Missio Day, we're going to unpack some of these mysteries and secrets of marriage. For instance, a few things to come. Next week, I'm going to prove from this text that you married the wrong person. You did. You married the wrong person. Primarily because the person you marry is not the person you're married to now. <laughs> I heard one author say, I feel sorry for my wife. She's been living with six men since we met, and they're all me. <laughs> a few weeks after that, we're going to talk about fighting in your marriage. Raise your hand if you fight in your marriage. No, I'm just kidding. Don't raise your hand. We all fight. And I'm going to talk about how to fight right in your marriage. I'm not going to say don't fight because it's not impossible. How to fight for your marriage so that it's good. A few weeks after that, we're going to talk about the mystery of the sexes, how we're so different, and that's by God's design. And why? Why is she so different than me? And a few weeks after that, we'll talk about how to have mystery in your marriage. That's something you always see on the cover of magazines, how to keep mystery in your marriage. And it is profound to me that those people don't realize that they're actually using Scripture when they say that, right? The mystery of marriage. So I would invite you to come back. We meet on Saturday nights at 6 p.m. for the next six weeks as we study Ephesians 5 and really begin to unpack the mystery and the power of the gospel and in your marriage. Now, as I close and as the band comes forward, we're going to sing some more songs to celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead and that he has power even today to raise our relationships and to raise our marriages from what may be death-like situations. And I also want to say this, if you're maybe for the first time here today, you've heard the gospel, you may have heard it your whole life, but the Bible says the Holy Spirit is the one that opens your eyes or opens your ears to hear it and to see it. And maybe tonight, the way that I've explained it through Ephesians, the way that it's been communicated as it relates to marriage, maybe your eyes have been opened, maybe your ears have been opened and you understand now, oh, that's the good news. 
That's the gospel that Jesus died for me and resurrected so that I can have new life with him forever and that he loves me so much. His whole, the whole Bible is about his mission to get me. If today's the first day you've heard that and you'd like to become a Christian or you'd like to become saved, which is what Jesus, God's mission is, is to save you, then I'm going to be standing right back there and I'd love to pray with you in the next 10 minutes. But then maybe also you're here and your marriage is at that place where it's buckling under the suffering and you need to talk to someone. You need, you need some help. And I don't have all the answers, but I would love to still talk to you. I'll be standing there and we can talk. We can pray together. I've done a lot of marriage counseling. I might be able to help, but even if I can't, I know about a dozen other pastors in this area who can. Marriage counselors as well. So don't be afraid. Don't be hesitant. Come on up. Talk to me. Otherwise, Let's pray and let's stand and let's worship that Jesus is alive today. Amen? He is risen. Father God, we thank you so much for your son that you sent, that you gave to die for our sin, that we may have everlasting eternal life. We thank you, Lord, that you loved us so much. You spared no expense. You gave the ultimate sacrifice. You gave your life. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given me and you've given many of us here a marriage. And at times it's hard and at times it's difficult. But I pray, Lord, that will you help us understand how it's a picture of your love for us? Will you help us understand how our marriage is a picture of the gospel? And might that understanding help us love our spouse even more? Because I do believe that you care greatly about our marriages and that you want to resurrect them into healthy, magnificent, gospel-like marriages. And I pray, Lord, that as we worship you for the resurrection, that you, your, the resurrection of your son, that, that explosive event, the shockwaves will reach us here this morning and resurrect our souls, resurrect our lives, and resurrect our marriages. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.